You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. This is week number two of our series called Doctrine That Goes the Distance. Last week we just kind of did this. Can you see the, the, the lectern up here? It's kind of this right here. Watch. Can you hear that at all? What am I doing? Yeah, scratching the surface. I mean, we delved into the Trinity for 45 minutes, and it was delightful, but we just barely peeked into this incomprehensible aspect of God's essential nature. I I, uh, thoroughly enjoyed gathering with you last week. It was delightful. Uh, Seven or eight, nine questions came in. I hope you got my answers. I didn't take them live in the service, but I did get back to you. just shows a real thirst among our people. And so we're going to dive into another doctrine this morning, the doctrine of God's revelation. How does God speak to us? What has He said and how has He spoken in history? As I thought about this week's doctrine, my mind raced back to songs I learned as a kid. As you know, I, I love hymns, New Oral. I just love hymns that speak blatantly and explicitly about the gospel. Um, I had asked the team to pull some together. They had some difficulties with being, some being out of town and weren't able to practice really in advance to get it together. And so we, we, we Josh will do this one, but we, I thought about the song, and I wasn't going to have him do this for you, but the B-I, yeah, you know that, don't you? Yeah. We're not singing all that, okay? I'm just saying that. I thought about that song. It's amazing what sticks with you, you know, 50 plus years, right? Simple rhymes, but man, I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. I thought about the song, um, Sing them over again to me, Wonderful words of life. You may not know that. It's an old hymn that kind of rehearsed in my head for a few weeks. Let me more of their beauty see. It's in the pages of Scripture. We see the beauty of Christ just resonating, glowing. Maybe you didn't know this, but the song, How Firm a Foundation. You saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. The songwriter there is saying the foundation is in the word. And so we can sing, we can think and talk about how God has revealed himself. It brings us really to understand that what we're talking about here this is this doctrine. We'll call it bibliology perhaps. That's more of the seminary word for the doctrine of revelation, how we you know, got our Bible. I'd rather approach it, not rather, but I also want to approach it in this way. Bibliology is the study of the Bible, but how has God spoken? How has He revealed Himself? Understand this before we dive in really deep. Understand this, that God has revealed Himself in two ways. First of all, the Word. And second of all, His Son. This is what Hebrews says to us. Notice this verse behind me. You can read it on your own, but it simply says that God spoke through the prophets, indicating there that there was something given that was written down. And then he spoke ultimately, and I would say even um, finally, what this verse says, through his son. So there's no more revelation still to come. God has spoken definitively and clearly and accurately in the word... And in what John would call the Word made flesh. You'll see this verse as well. So when you think about how has God spoken, understand that He has spoken through His Word and through His Son. Watch this, church. Period. Now, does God speak to His children today? Does He lead them? Yes, but not in the sense of divine revelation. I might say to you, the Holy Spirit's led me in this way, but I'm not saying you should add that to the Bible. And neither should you, because God has definitively, finally spoken in two ways. Through His Word, the prophets, and then through His Son, Jesus. And now God's revelation is complete. So any church or preacher or evangelist or teacher would say to you, well, I think we're going to add some extra to the Bible. Here's something I've gotten from God that's on par with the Bible. It's tantamount to Scripture. Uh, That's a red flag. You with me? God has spoken... He hasn't put a comma. He has put a period. And it's through the Word and through His Son. And by the way, the Holy Spirit magnifies both of those. We'll talk more about that doctrine in the the coming weeks. But this is what we're talking about today, is this 
idea of God's revelation. And I would say his self-revelation. We don't bring to the table of the Bible our imaginations. We don't say, well, I think I want to add this in there. I think uh, my picture is better than their picture. God has revealed himself distinctly through the pages of Scripture and then distinctly in the person of God the Son. We're going to be looking this morning more at this idea of God's written revelation. Our memory verses this week, uh, you'll get your card as you leave. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Two verses that you'll probably somewhat be aware of, but I think they're within a context that I want to examine this morning to give us a broader understanding of the doctrine of revelation or bibliology. So take your Bibles, locate 2 Timothy 3. And instead of just focusing on 16 and 17, which are beautiful verses, I want us to look at actually 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14, and going through about verse 2 of chapter 4. All right? I want to look at this scripture with you, first of all, just in an exegetical fashion. And we'll go to our lab to do that, so have your pen handy. Then I want to kind of walk you through, maybe in a chart form, what it says. I need to do this pretty quick this morning, make some good tracks. But we'll kind of look at that in a chart form, go to class a little bit, learn some big words, kind of make you feel like you're, you're getting smarter as well. Learn some things we, that, that doctrinally we believe, but then we're going to kind of hit the streets and take some application as well. I will take a couple of questions, Lord willing, so if you want to text those in, feel free to. I'll do that just after we kind of walk through the chart. But let's go to our lab for a minute, can we? And let's examine these verses, 2 Timothy 3, oh, verses uh, about 14 through, let's say, chapter 4, verse 2. I want you to notice a couple things. One thing that's not on this um, this here, I wish it was, right in verse 14, we're up here at the top, see this? There's a word, oh, I knew this would happen if I press on it, my bad. There's a word up in here, it's called but. You see that beginning of verse 14? It's a transition word. It doesn't show in this one I'm using, my apologies. But from that word but, in 14, and then you go down to chapter 4, verse 2, and you see the word 4 in, in verse 3, see that? Those are transition words, or connecting words. In between those two words, we have a section of Scripture that I think draws some major points. So that's kind of how I chose this context, because connecting words kind of let us know where thoughts are continuing or breaking or stopping and starting. And so here, but, at the beginning of verse 14, kind of shows something is kind of being inserted, and 4 kind of means an explanation coming. So what's happening between 3.14 and 4.2? Do you notice some things? He's actually asking... Timothy to do something. He says, but as for you, continue. See that? It's an imperative. He says, continue in what you have learned. So here's this idea of what. Timothy's learned it. He firmly believes it. But we still don't know what it is, do we? He says, Timothy, continue what you've learned. You firmly believed it. What have you learned? What do you believe? What are you to continue in? The idea is to remain. By the way, if you back this chapter up a little bit, you'll see that he's told to avoid that's another imperative in the previous part of the chapter. So he's saying, Timothy, don't do something. Don't run after men who are false teachers. Instead, you continue in something. What is it? Notice the words here. It is the sacred writings. Now, what I would do is I would connect, continue to sacred writings. And then look what he does next. In verse 16, all scripture. I would connect sacred writings and scripture. So he's telling Timothy, first of all, to do something. Continue in what you've learned, what you've believed. You've learned it from a child. You were acquainted with these sacred writings. One reason is because they're able to make you wise for salvation, verse 15 says. So he's to continue in the sacred writings, the scripture. Just a note here, this word, scripture, in verse 16, or sacred writings, in verse 15, is the word graphe. It's used 51 times in the New Testament. Every single one of those refer to the Old Testament. Now I make that point to show you something. There's a tendency to think, well, the Old Testament's good, but that's not really applied to us. What does Paul say to Timothy? He says here, look at this. He says the Old Testament is able to make you wise for salvation. This isn't to say the New Testament's not Scripture. It's to say definitively for sure, though, and at least... That the sacred writings, the scripture, the Old Testament, we might even go as far as to say the law, 
They're able to make you wise for salvation. Why? Because they all point to Jesus. Which is why Paul would say, another point in the New Testament, that all of God's promises, they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So when you read the Old Testament, you should not be thinking Jewish dietary laws, <laughs> tabernacle or temple ceremonial rituals. You should be thinking, how does this point to Jesus Christ? Because they're able to make us wise for salvation. Let me pause there and mention this as well, because you may say, well, if 51 times this word's mentioned, and it refers to the Old Testament, does that mean the New Testament is Scripture? It does, because of this right here. In 2 Peter, Peter writes, uh, this is chapter 3, he writes about Paul's writings. And he says, some of the things Paul writes, they're hard to understand. And then he watch this phrase, he says, as in other Scriptures, same word, graphe, and in one single phrase, Peter associates, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's writings on par with the Old Testament. And I think it's one of the reasons we know the New Testament, as well as the Old, is inspired. It's Scripture. It's God's words to us. Does that make sense? So this is what Timothy is to continue in. The Scriptures. But why? You may say, verse 15 says, because they would make you wise for salvation. I would say the larger picture is this, because the Scriptures are breathed out by God. In other words, they are God-inspired, which means they're powerful. When we gather on Sunday mornings and we look at the Scriptures, we're not just looking at another instruction manual by a wise man. We're not just investigating like a book of, of really good tips. We're investigating God's very words breathed out. As such, they're powerful. They're supernatural. They're life-changing. We'll read a verse in a few minutes that will explain this. Just know, first of all, this is what I think is happening here. Timothy, you continue in the path of the word. Why? Because that's where the power is. Hey, church, listen to me very carefully. If you want your marriage to be different, get in the word. If you want to raise your kids right, get in the Word. If you want to use your finances right, get in the Word. We could go through a number of subjects. I'm just saying, continuing in the path of the Word is where the power is. Why? Because these words are breathed out by God. Now we're going to say more about how this looks and what inspiration means and how it kind of... Um, happened in these first century times and before. But for now, just understand. He says, continuing the word, because it's powerful. And then he says, it's also profitable. See that? It's the same word used in uh, another portion of the New Testament by Paul, when he says that bodily exercise is of some profit. But what does he say here? He says that Scripture is profitable. I think there's a real contrast a lot of times we love to make sure that we're taking care of our outsides, our externals, aren't we? I don't think there's anything wrong with that per se, unless it becomes a God and that's all you're consumed with. But here he's saying this, here's what's most profitable, and that's God's Word. So I could pause here and we could just really do some good preaching, couldn't we? Like how much time do you spend in front of the mirror in your bathroom versus the mirror of God's Word? How much time do we spend in the gym, I suppose, on our knees in prayer? Now, I'm not meant to make you feel guilty. If you feel convicted, I'm good with that. My goal is not to provide guilt as much as to say this. This is the same word. And, and we need to be honest about ourselves. The path that we're to continue on, which is the path of God's word, because where the power is, it is profitable for things way beyond just the external image that we're trying to portray. It gets down deep. Look what he says here. All Scripture, it's powerful because it's breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching. Notice these words here. For them teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now, a couple notes here. I've always seen these as four distinct elements of God's Word. God's revelation helps us in four ways. It helps us... By teaching us, reproving us, correcting us, and training us. And I think that's a legitimate way to see this. However, 
What if, and I think this, this other way may fit the context better. You'll see in a moment. What if he's saying that all Scripture is profitable for, for teaching? Teach all of God's Word. Teach the whole counsel. Let every bit of God's Word come to bear upon His people and upon your life. Because it's in the teaching of God's Word, it's in God's Word that we find reproof, correction, and training. We find what's wrong, we find what's right, and we find how to do it. What if actually the last three flow out of the first one? Now, either one of those, we'll stay friends, we'll get along great. You with me? I mean, this is really way minor. But I tend to, just in the last few weeks of studying, I tend to think that based on the context, maybe he's saying, Scripture, man, that's what's most valuable. That's what's beneficial and advantageous, so teach it. Because later in chapter 4, verse 2, he's going to say, Timothy, I charge you to preach the word. Continue in the Word. So his, the, the context seems to say this. Whatever you do, don't abandon the Scriptures. Because it's in the teaching of those Scriptures that we find, here's what we shouldn't do, here's what we should do, and here's how to do it. Does that make sense, church? So I think reproof, correction, and training in righteousness actually flow out of the teaching. This is how powerful Scripture is. It's God-breathed words that actually show us what's wrong, what's right, and then how to do what's right. The end result of that, verse 17, this is where it really gets uh, just shoe leather applicable. I love this. Here's the word that. It's called a, a henna of purpose in theological circles. In Greek class, you'll learn I-N-A. It's got an H kind of mark on top. It's called henna. It's called a henna of purpose. In other words, here's why uh, the next phrase is coming. So you have a previous phrase, you have a henna of purpose in the next phrase. Why is God's Word profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training? What's the point of all this? That the man of God may be complete or equipped. Maybe, uh, King James says, furnished. It's like your house won't be empty, okay? Like you've got a house that's really built well, but there's nothing inside for people to enjoy. He says a life where you have a lot of facts and knowledge, but then you don't flesh it out in, what's the word? Good works. It's like, man, you've you got a shell of a life. It's like a lot of knowledge, you know, all the words and the facts, but man, you're not doing anything. He says here that the Word of God should show up in our life. This is really the definition of maturity. Maturity is God's Word showing up in good works. Do you know that? That's when this verse, this, this verse here says, that's when you are complete. You're equipped. You have what you need to live life, to, to show that you're on the path. So the end goal of continuing, watch this church, verse 14, the end goal of continuing, that's the imperative in this context, by the way. The end goal of continuing is that you would show and display good works. And I think that's then why he tells Timothy to preach the word. Notice after this discourse on God's word and how it was revealed to us and its power and its uh, ability to make us wise for salvation and to equip us. He says, so Timothy, you need to do one thing. You need to preach the word. The word charge there, it's interesting, isn't it? I command you. This is no small like suggestion. So he says, Timothy, I charge you in God's presence and in the presence of Christ Jesus, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, let me show you something here. Preaching the word is an imperative, being ready is an imperative, reprove, rebuke, exhort. These are all imperatives as well as continue. So if you want to know the real context of this section of verses, He's telling Timothy, stay with the word. Why? It has power to change a life and to equip a life. And so when those lives are all gathered, you should do one thing. Preach the word. And notice how some of the same words, use it to reprove. Correct. Rebuke. Correct. Exhort. Show the right thing. Kind of similar to verse 16 and 17. What's going on here, church? Listen very carefully. And I want to be just crystal clear here. Paul isn't thinking there's room 
for much of anything when Timothy gathers with the people except for making sure the word is front and center. Are you listening to me? I want to be very careful how we tread here. It's not saying that other things are, are sinful. And it's not necessarily trying to find a reason to, to be unnecessarily long or boring, okay? But I want to just be really Windex clear. When the church gathers, we can do other things, but we must do at least one thing. Preach the word. Teach the word. Be reproved, rebuked, exhorted by the word. We must hear what God has said. I don't know if you're looking for a church. Maybe you're a guest and you're new. Maybe you're a longtime member and you're thinking about changing churches. I don't know. Maybe you're wondering why we do things the way we do around here. Let me just say this scripture leans into us every single week. It shapes and forms how we go about things. In our gathering as well as in our small groups when our church is not just gathered but scattered. Because the word must be central. All right? So that's kind of the text kind of laid out for us. Let me show it to you in simple chart form, can I? Because I want you to kind of see how this breaks down. Some of you might, be, uh, might learn better this way. I think four things are happening, and I'll insert some um, class time into this as well. I think, first of all, he answers the what question. He says, continue in the Scripture. Stay on the path. In regards to this, let me teach you some words that I think you, you want to know as we talk about the doctrine of God's revelation or bibliology. Let's check in the classroom a minute, can we? There's the term canon, all right? Now, that's not a thing you light on the end and it goes off boom at the other end, all right? When we speak of the canon of Scripture, we're talking about the collection of books that are known as the Word of God. 66 books. We do not consider the Apocrypha as part of the canon. Other books of some of those periods and, um, are not part of the biblical collection of books. The canon, as self-attested to, would be the 66 books. By the way, about this um, canon, it was probably 400-ish B.C. that the Old Testament was actually kind of came to be seen and realized as uh, God's words to us. Uh, No prophets were speaking in those last 400 years, called the silent years. Christ was the next one to come and speak, John the Baptist and Christ, I should say. So in the intervening time, what happened? The Jews began to realize God has given us a word through the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and those writers, and Moses, and David, and so forth. So the Old Testament was kind of collected and gathered. Somewhere around the 400 B.C. mark, it was seen as God's word. The New Testament was then written in the first century, primarily Peter and Paul, of course, a few other writers. It was probably around the 300s that they were seen as self-attesting. They were recognized as having God's authority. And so they put it together a list of these 66 books we call the canon. And by the end of the 300s, there was a definitive, authoritative set of trusted, reliable books known as the Bible. Letters. That's called the canon. They come from what we call autographs or manuscripts. Now sometimes in your footnotes you'll see the, the initials MSS. That's just a shortened way to talk about manuscripts. And autographs and manuscripts were the original, I should say autographs were the original thing that, that were written by those men inspired by God. Manuscripts are the copies often that were made. So here's what we're saying is that, that God's word was initially given, written down by men who were inspired, and what God said was inspired. Those autographs, those manuscripts were inspired. And they were copied by scribes. And God not only inspired His Word, He preserved His Word. And so over time, about 1,500 years, 40 different authors, God's preserved and now collected His revelation to us in what we know as the Bible. This is what we know as the canon of Scripture. You'll hear that sometimes. It's a collection of these manuscripts and these autographs. 
There's thousands of manuscripts and thousands of autographs, but there's only one original. Just be aware of that, you know. Then it was copied from that point forward. So this is what, what Paul is saying to Timothy. Stay on this path, the path of God's Word, the, the trusted, reliable, inspired Scriptures. Why? Because it contains the power. Scripture has power. Why does Scripture have power? Why does Scripture have power? Here's a word for you. Inspiration. That's the word God breathed. Now, in our text, in the King James, I think the version reads, all Scripture is inspired of God. That's kind of our way of expressing the Greek word God breathed. Out of God. The breath of God. So Scripture is the the very word and words of God. It's the breath of God. It's got God's power and, and stamp His signature on it. Now the question is, how... Do how did that play out? Peter and Paul give us an example. In fact, I would say this, and I think this is what we would believe when I say think, because there's some room for disagreement on maybe how specific you get. I believe both the men and the manuscripts were inspired. And I should say the original manuscripts. So uh, Peter talks about how men of God, this is uh, I think 2 Peter 1, 20, 21, how men of God were moved along, were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So something at, at points in time upon the Old Testament and New Testament writers happened where God's Spirit inspired, breathed upon them, and then they wrote God's words for us. It was a process superintended by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that they always walked around in that. It doesn't mean that everything they said was inspired. But at points in time, they were carried by the Holy Spirit. And so men were speaking for God. And then what they wrote, Paul would say, it's called Scripture. He says, that is inspired. So I would say to you, both the men at times and the manuscripts in the original form are inspired. They're God-breathed. So they're trustworthy. They're authoritative. That's the doctrine of inspiration. That's kind of contained within the doctrine of revelation. This is how God's word came to be. God spoke it to men, and they wrote it down through His Holy Spirit. This is why we know the word of God is inerrant. It's another kind of big word you'll see. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. It means that anything the Bible writes won't contradict to fact. That does not mean that the Bible does not use normal language or include within its narratives things that people said that were untrue. The Bible might write a narrative, and he might record someone lying, but that doesn't mean the Bible's lying. Does that make sense? It's giving us an accurate depiction of a story in which someone lied. The Bible is inerrant, and it's authoritative. And both of these are true because they are from, uh, these words are from God. So this is why there's power in the Word, in the Bible. So, Timothy, stay on the path. Why? Because it has the power for what? Here's the next part of our chart. We're going to get there. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate it. A life of visible godliness. This would be the word prophet. So stay on the path. That's where the power is. Power to do what? Be profitable as a believer. It's God's word that produces good works. And so we want our life to, to showcase God's glory. We want Matthew 5.16 to, to be a, a life of verse for us, so to speak. Stay in God's Word. Stay on the path of the Scriptures. That's where the power is because it comes from God. That path, that powerful path of the Scripture is where a life is profitable. In other words, a visible godliness shows up. Works flow from us that say, wow, uh, you're following God. And so how do we accomplish this? I think in this specific narrative, he says we must prioritize the intake. In other words, preaching. Now that does not mean, hear me well, church, hear me. This simple chart does not mean that it's not worth your time to study your Bible and that individual memorization, um, uh, reading is not important. I'm not saying preaching is the only way. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in this context of these verses, Paul does funnel everything down to Timothy's role as a pastor saying, Timothy, so when you, when you get together, I want to charge you. You've got to make the Word of God central. That's, that's my point here. And so I want to be true to the context. But I want to also add this. The intake of God's Word must be a priority for all of us. Why? Because that's 
what forms visible godliness in us, that's where the power is. That's the path we've got to stay on. Now, church, listen very carefully. Listen very carefully. Is there anything more relevant in the 21st century here in 2017 than to be instructed and exhorted to continue with the Word of God? I can't, and I mean this, I mean this wholeheartedly, not being hyperbolic, I can't think of anything more needful this hour than to encourage you fellow believers to stick with the Bible because that's what's being attacked on every front in our culture. One of mine and Julie's daily prayers is God, protect our kids and their minds as they raise their kids, as they raise their families, our grandkids, God, um, we pray in different ways, but our, our point is this. God, don't let them be swayed by the culture. And you realize, and I don't want to get off on a, on a rant here culturally or socially or politically, it's not my goal, but I just need you to be aware. There is an all-out attack, and there has been for decades, to reduce divine authority and to pretty much just say you can make up your own truth. But even in the first century, Paul's saying, Timothy, you stay with the word. That's where the power is. That's what produces a life of godliness. And so when you're together, make sure the word gets the attention. So church, I don't know what you're into. All your hobbies, interests. I don't know what little K's you're chasing after. We've all got them, okay? We've all got hobbies and interests and things we do, and they're not bad. But if they're replacing the main thing, which is God's Word. If you're getting your cues from the culture and not from Scripture, if you're spending inordinate amounts of time trying to make sure other people think you're good and you're not worried about what God thinks, something's wrong with your life. You've actually, you're not continuing. You're straying. And I want to call you back to continuing in the Word. It may seem like, wow, we just kind of do the same thing every week, or it's the same books, it's this series, or it's, man, read your Bible every day, you keep saying that all the time, and yet it's really not hard in that sense. It's a simple process. Stay close to God, stay in the Word, trusting, believing, it's authoritative, inspired. This is what we believe. And when the culture shouts at you and screams at you, just have a strong spine and a big smile, but don't Buy it. We don't decide truth. We don't get to make up what we think and believe. God has revealed that to us. In his written revelation, the Bible. Let's put it in a single sentence, can we? Because I know in some sense I'm preaching to the choir, I know that. Here's what I think we're saying today. Here's what I think this context Uh, This simple scripture about God's word is saying to us that God's word is God's power. Did you catch that? God's word is God's power. And it produces profitable people who persevere. How do we continue? Through the word. Which is why we should continue in the word. (laughs) That's the point. Stay in the word. That's how you'll persevere. It has the power to to cause that to happen. And so just in a simple nutshell, will you read this with me? This is what we're kind of saying today. God's word is God's power that produces profitable people who persevere. Two verses to highlight this, and I'll take a few questions. Paul said this to the Thessalonian believers, and we thank God constantly for this. This is my favorite verse in the whole Bible, by the way. This is what I would call my life verse. I, um, man, this is an awesome verse. Paul said he thanks God constantly that when they received the word of God, which means that when Paul came and preached to them, he wasn't preaching his own words, even though it was Paul preaching. He was actually preaching God's word. He said, then you didn't hear it as the word of men. I spoke it, Paul says, but you didn't think, oh, that's just Paul's ideas. He was saying, no, you heard it like God's word. And you accept it as that, the word of God, and watch this phrase, which is what? At 
work in you believers. God's word comes into us and begins to change us. Something happens to us. I know many of you have just gotten into the word. You're reading it. You're hearing it. You're accepting it. And your life is changing. You don't really know how to explain it. But you said to me, Todd, something's changing in my life. Appetites are different. Direction. What's happening? You're letting the word of God get into you and work. The word for work there is the word for energy. It's the word ergon. You're, you're, you're putting the word of God in and then it's, it's energizing things that need to happen that you can't make happen on your own. Why? Here's the next verse. Because the word of God is quick and powerful. It's living and active. Did you catch that? So in one sense, watch this. You're not studying a book. You're understanding a person. The word of God. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. I'm not sure how you get any sharper than that. That means both sides are sharp. But he's saying it's sharper than that. Here's why that sharpness matters. Because this living, active, incredibly sharp, a sharp sword pierces into places that we can't even hardly divide. I think this is the point of this verse. He's saying it gets down to areas that you can't even hardly distinguish yourself. Between the soul and the spirit. Like, wow, that's, that's a microscopic division. Exactly. That's how powerful and alive, energetic and living God's word is. It can cut through things. You even yourself find hard to distinguish. Like, man, what's going on in my life here? God's word just pierces. Between the joints and the marrow, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word gets in places even our minds can't go. It gets into our hearts and our motives, our intentions. It gets into the spiritual crevices and corners of our life. And then suddenly God reveals to us, oh, so this is what's going on. How does that kind of change happen? How does change this deep happen? How does transformation at this level occur? The word of God. And so if today you hear one thing, yes, I hope you heard some of the big words. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture, the inerrancy, yes. We believe there are 66 books in the canon, yes. We believe God moved upon men and manuscripts, yes. It's called bibliology, yes. We believe God has spoken ultimately, definitively in two ways, the Word and His Son, yes. But I hope you hear this. In connection with all the facts and terms, that without God's word, you won't make it. There's no change apart from God's word. There, there's no profit apart from God's word. There's no power apart from God's word. And I hope you'll take some time today to analyze your schedule, your hobbies, your interests. Is God's word prioritized? Before I give you just a few apps to take home with you, let's see if there's, maybe let's take one or two questions, can we? Is the word complete in verse 17, a final disposition of sanctification? It is not the word teleos, which is the one used in Hebrews mostly. It's the word, uh, that's the word for perfect. It's just a different word that actually means you're given what you need to do your job. So I don't want to say no to that, but I would say a more textual rendering would be that you are complete for the job of, at hand. You're equipped. You notice God has given you what you need to do your job as a Christian. Does that make sense? I don't want to say it's perfection, but I don't want to say it's not because God's Word does do that. But in this specific context, He's simply saying the job you've been given to do, God's Word will give you the equipment to do it. It will fit you. It will... Um, make you complete. It'll, it'll give you what you need. So I think that's maybe a better understanding of that. It's not the word teleos. It's a different word, meaning he, he equips us for what we have to do. Yeah, good question. Let's do one more, can we? Who gathered the canon together, and what was the criteria for a manuscript to be added or not added? 
Well, let's read about four or five volumes as we answer that question, right? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, so the canon was gathered uh, by church fathers, apostles, and prophets through multiple decades and even centuries. But we don't ascribe, and I say we as in the sense of Christians and God's people through the centuries, we don't ascribe authority to God's word. It is what they call self-attesting. That's the word you'll want to kind of remember. So as they read God's words, it was self-evident. We say it like this. Scriptural authority is not something given, it's something recognized. And so, through decades and centuries, church fathers, uh, often councils, you've heard of different councils, Council of Nicaea and so forth like that, they would recognize, well, this is, this is authoritative scripture from God, and this isn't. And you may have a hard time distinguishing that from like, well, they made something that's scriptures. That's not true. Men never make something scripture. It is scripture, and we recognize it. It is self-attesting. Does that make sense? So, the criteria would be that. Is God's authority present in this writing? Which is one of the reasons that Esther was one of the last to be included in the canon. It's because it was difficult to find Yahweh's name in it. Now, his fingers are all over it. And it does contain the authority of God, but those were some of the processes used. Hebrews was also one that I think was late in recognition. But that's not an issue with God. That's an issue with men. Are you with me? I hope that answers a little bit. There are multiple volumes about this subject. To help you with that, we do have in stock now at the Connect Central of the three books we mentioned last week. The one that's about, oh, a few pages. Then one about maybe 100-something pages. Then one that's 1,200 pages. And each of those books will give you insight into this very question. Not only things about this doctrine, but other doctrines, okay? So two good questions. If you have more, text them in. I will get back to you, I promise. I've got to be gone this week to an annual meeting for a convention um, for our church as a delegate. But I can still text and help you out from that point of view, okay? Um, A couple of applications for you, and then I'll wrap this up. Here's five words that will help you as you let the doctrine of God's revelation or bibliology blanket you. Study. You can use the word read, meditate. You may use different color ink pens. You may not use any markers. All those are man-made preferences, okay? I like to mark my Bible. I like different colors. But can we just get past how we do something? I just want to know one thing. Are you reading the Bible. And I'm a big fan, personally, of reading it as a, and I'll use the word novel here. One of the negatives of, of studying, and I like the inductive method, and I like studying verses and breaking them apart, looking at words and studying you know, singular words. It's very helpful, but sometimes you miss the, the meta-narrative. I think it's very helpful just to read large chapters of God's Word at one sitting. He's like, man, this, this is an amazing book that God's power is revealed in, you know? You get a different view when you look at three or four chapters as opposed to one verse. But I just say do both. Are you reading God's Word? So study it, read it, meditate on it, listen to it, utilize your drive time, your running time, your exercise time, your dishwashing time. Um, just, just think, guys, how much of the Word of God is getting into me? And I, I can make this promise based on God's word. Now, it's not even me making it. God's making it. But I can verbalize God's promise that if you get the word of God into your life, your life will change. You won't necessarily need, you know, to have this weekly like, come on, you can do it. I think those are important. But God's word and his Holy Spirit are enough to change your life. But beyond just reading the words and, and just seeing like, well, what's the, the facts? What do the facts say? Savor the person of the Bible. Because the Bible is designed to show us God. And especially God is revealed in Jesus Christ and His redemptive plan. That is really what the pages of Scripture reveal. They reveal God's redemptive plan in history to bring to Himself a people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. So savor that aspect and, and, and the real thread, the message of the Word. Show it. In other words, just be willing to live out what you read. And then sit. Now, this is an odd one. I was going to put it in quotes, but I thought, well, that will kind of ruin the flow of the look, so I'm not going to do that, right? I'm kind of weird that way, a little OCD on words and stuff. 
But the truth is, you need to sit under Scripture. You cannot read the New Testament in one or two sittings and not realize that preaching and teaching are central in the life of the New Testament church in both large and small group formats. We can all disagree and work through how to do those things. There's probably a thousand ways to skin a cat on that, okay? But you cannot delete the gathering of God's people in both large and small group formats with the Word of God central. You cannot, it's, it's, it's impossible to render a New Testament without that. And I just want to challenge some of you. You need to make the large group gathering and the small group gathering a larger priority in your life. I feel like sometimes, to be honest with you, I'll use the word church. I know that's us, it's not the building. But I think sometimes at certain seasons, church is just another thing we do. And so we have you know, four or five things that we do, and church is one of them. And so it just kind of ebbs and flows, like baseball season, soccer season, uh, travel. I'm not saying that, that you're keeping an attendance record. That's not my heart. I've, I've, I've preached on this before. You know my heart on that. But I, I don't make no bones about it. If we don't prioritize gathering together to hear the word and to talk about the word, to discuss it, to look into the word in small and large group formats, we, we're missing a non-negotiable element in the life of God's people. So church, <laughs> prioritize sitting under God's word. Even with your children, if you're still raising kids at home. Man, do not dispense of that kind of time. You may do it in a way that fits you. We weren't a real fan of like the family altar. I've got a friend of mine in a southern part of Iowa. He gathers his kids every single night, reads a scripture to them, and prays with them. I mean, every night. He does it. He's at our house. He'll, he'll call them on the phone. Okay, kids, gather around. I'm going to read to you. And one night I was at his house. It was midnight. We got in late. He said, get the kids up. We're reading. They got the kids up. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. That's what he did. He got the kids up. I don't think he's missed a day in his whole life with his head kids. He is adamant that they got to hear the word. And you know what? If you're around his house, you'd be like, man, that, that dude, yeah, something's working. Now, we didn't follow that approach, but we made dinner time and car rides all about talking about the Bible. So we took that approach. It worked for us. Here's what, what you can't do. You can't just dispense of making the Bible a central point of conversation. So, man, get your kids to sit under it as well. Okay? And then lastly, you say, what do you mean by, we got to send the Bible, Todd? I mean, what's that all about, right? Can we just say this, that we are very blessed to have the Bible, right? But there are places where God's power through his word has yet reached. Do you know that? There's no copy of the scriptures in their language. There are places like that on the globe. I think it's very healthy for a church to to realize, let's make sure we share our blessings. This is why we're so big on multiplying, on sending, on giving to missions, to supporting partners, especially in places where there's no access to the gospel because there's no written copy of God's word in their language. Now, do you realize what can happen once a village or a community or an area gets a copy of the Bible? Do you know what can happen? I mean, amazing things can happen. In fact, let me just show you a brief snippet of what can happen. You can see the rest of this video on our Facebook page today sometime. But here's about two minutes of what can happen when God's Word gets into a village or community. Watch this simple clip, would you? It was 50 years ago when my mother and my father began an unforgettable journey. I was just seven months old when they moved deep into the jungles of Papua. We made our home among a small tribal group known as the Sawi. My dad learned the language. My mom treated the sick, all with the purpose of telling them about Jesus. But the people did not respond. The Sawi were headhunters. They were cannibals. They lived in a constant state of war. As time passed, we began to lose hope that the gospel would take root. My parents were faced with a decision. Finally, Dad explained to the Sawi that if they kept on fighting, we could no longer stay. But the Sawi were desperate to keep us around, so they finally agreed to make peace with each other. In order for that to happen, each Sawi village gave an infant, a baby boy, to their enemies. 
and this child became known as the peace child. It was through this unexpected exchange, buried deep in their culture, that my parents were given a perfect opportunity to share the gospel with the Saudi, to explain to them that God sent his very own peace child, Jesus, to make peace with us. It's been 50 years since that day, and we're very anxious to see how the Sawi are doing. that I'm standing on more than 40 years ago, probably 45 years ago. And my world just revolved around this area, just swimming in this river. His name is Moses. And he was just saying that he used to really enjoy jumping off the tree here with me into the river. <laughs> He said when my parents came years ago that they were still living in darkness. God's word has been planted here, the gospel has been received, the place is full of peace, it's a safe place to live. We're very blessed. I want to give thanks to God because the gospel came here. And I want you to know that when you leave on the airplane tomorrow, that we're going to stay faithful to the gospel as long as we live. It's everything to us. Goodbye and God bless you, he says. Amen. God has spoken. I want everyone to hear, don't you? Let's pray.